We're continuing in this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and uh, we're going to cover some real ground here tonight and in the next couple weeks as we uh, move into the Advent season, and then we're going to kind of camp out on a couple chapters through Advent, and so uh, excited about where we're headed. Um, This week um, is—it's going to— push in just a little bit on you. I just want to warn you up front, there's going to be a little bit of a a finger pointed toward you, but not to worry, that finger's been pointed toward me all week, and so I'm really glad to share the love with you. So you can uh, can jump into that. Um, Remember, if you were with us last week, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem, and as he's come into Jerusalem, he went right into the temple and acted literally like he owned the place, right? Like flipping over tables, driving people out, sending everything, scrambling, And the Jewish leaders are worked up. They are offended by his behavior, uh, except that they can't do anything about it because the crowd loves him and the crowd is in favor of him. And so they can't push directly against them. So what they're going to do for the next chapter and a half is what I'm calling play some games. They're going to kind of uh, use word games and life games to try to get around following after Jesus. And I say that the finger's going to point a little bit towards you and I tonight because I think what you're going to find is that although we would love to put ourselves in the category of the disciples, it's far more often that we're like the Pharisees. We tend to try to do the same thing. When Jesus calls for real obedience, we tend to try to squirm around and figure out the easy way out. And so I think as we look through uh, this teaching and these parables, I think you're going to find yourself in there. A couple weeks ago, I found a quote from a a music, a recording artist named Josh White, who's also a pastor in Portland, Oregon. He says this, we want to be saved, but we don't want anyone other than Jesus to have to die. Now just think about that. Leave that up there for a minute. Think about that for a second. We want to be saved, but we don't want anyone other than Jesus to have to die. My immediate response as I read that was, well, of course. Jesus is who dies. Like, that's the gospel. That's the way it works, right? Jesus dies so that we don't have to. I've only said that thousands and thousands of times in my life. But as I thought through it, I remembered the call of Jesus. Remember what he says, if anyone would come after me, he must, what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. The call to Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about 70 years ago, The call to discipleship is to come and die. And so with that in mind, this quote hits a little bit differently. We want to be saved, but we don't want anyone other than Jesus to have to die. We want to figure out a way around it. Now, of course, we don't literally die. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. But then he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's this death and life kind of thing going on. And and death, daily death, can maybe be summarized best by the idea of repentance. We just cross over October 31st, which some of you think is Halloween, but actually that's Reformation Day. And so that's what we were celebrating. If you wanted to dress up in our house, you have to dress up like Martin Luther on October 31st. That's the way it works. Um, When Martin Luther posted the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, the first thesis that he made was this, that the Christian life is always one of repentance. We think about repentance as a point in time, 
I come up, I pray a prayer, I repent, and then I begin to live my life. But the Bible talks about repentance as an ongoing way of living, that we daily die to ourselves as we turn, that's literally what repentance means, we turn from one thing to another thing. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through the text and the way that Jesus calls us to repentance and the way we kind of try to wiggle out of it and allow that to lead us to the joyous death that Jesus calls us to. So we're going to do that under four points. Yes, four points and communion. That means it's going to be fast, right? All the children said amen, and the parents of young children said amen twice. So there's going to be uh, four points. An introductory question is where we'll start. And then we're going to have three games that they're going to play. They're redefining games, redefining grace, redefining ownership, redefining lordship. Or you could call those a game of grace, a game of ownership, and a game of lordship if you'd rather go that route. So let's pray together, and then let's dive into the scriptures. Jesus, thank you for your presence with us, and thank you for the joy of being able to gather together to worship. It's such a good thing for us to be able to do, and we are thrilled to be able to do it. And so, Jesus, we now invite you to be center of all that's being said and done. Would you lead me and guide me that my words would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, and they would, trans, tra, they would transform us, that we would be new people because of you. And so God, do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 23. So this is, Jesus has just uh, withered the fig tree. He's coming back toward the temple. This is the day after he's driven all of the vendors out of the temple and cleared out the temple. He's going to enter back in again in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so um, uh, first of all, if you are in school, homeschool or at school, would you just raise your hand real quick so I can see what we're talking about here if you're in school? Okay, so let me just tell you a little secret. If you are given a test question and you answer it with another question and then tell your teacher if you can't answer the question, I'm not going to answer your question, you're going to get an F. I just wanted you to know that. It doesn't work in every setting. But in Jewish uh, culture, there was this way of interacting between the rabbis where they would challenge one another back and forth. They would ask these questions. And so they asked Jesus a question. He asked the question back, and he stumps them. Now I want you to see this is not just a stall tactic. This is not just Jesus saying, here, I'm going to question you about John the Baptist and wait and see what happens so I can avoid your question. He's actually, in a very indirect way, answering their question. We know that because Matthew gives us insight into what they're saying. Remember, uh, what they said here is, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, that was true of John the Baptist, 
but it was equally true in that moment of Jesus himself. By what authority do you do these things? Well, if it's from God, they better listen. But if it's not from God, the crowd is going to riot. And so he's actually answering the question without answering the question. And then when they are unwilling to respond, he answers their question by giving them three stories. Now, I know in your Bible there's a break between chapter one and chapter, or chapter 21 and chapter 22, but all three of these stories are actually in response to their question. By what authority do you do these things? They're going to enter into what we might call the authority game. And so let's pick up in verse 28. What do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. (laughs) Anybody tried that with their dad anytime recently? That doesn't go well. I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So here's what's going on. Jesus tells this story, these two sons. One gives lip service. Of course I will do that, but doesn't actually do it. The other one says, absolutely, I'm not doing that, and then reconsiders and ends up doing it. Now, if that hasn't quite hit home for you yet, let me point out what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He's saying there are some among us who say they believe God, who say their life belongs to God, who give with lip service the lordship to Jesus— and yet live as though they are Lord. They live without any regard for the teachings of Jesus, the call of Jesus, the life that Jesus is inviting them into. And there are other people who seemingly ignore the call of the gospel, but yet at some point in time, they awaken in their hearts, they turn, and they come back to God. Which one's following him? Well, Jesus says there are tax collectors and prostitutes going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. These are the the worst of the worst, and they're going into heaven because they've awakened, they've allowed their heart to open up, they've turned, and you haven't. See, here's the game. Um, We say, I'm going to follow Jesus. We say with our mouths, I'm going to pursue him. But then, when we don't, for whatever reason, because I don't want to, because I don't feel like it is inconvenient right now, that's way too difficult, whatever it may be, we say there's grace for that. Have you ever done that? Where you're, you know you're being disobedient. And even as you're being disobedient, you're thinking in your mind, there's grace. That's why there's grace. Except here's the problem. That's a complete redefinition of grace throughout the centuries. That's never been what grace meant. Grace was always intended to pick us up as we tripped in our pursuit of Christ. Grace was never intended to be a premeditated get-out-of-jail-free card. 
But see, what happens is we turn it around and we say, don't worry, there's grace for that. And Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven and you're not. Why? Because you have no intention of following after Jesus. When you've already made the determination that you're not going to, that's not grace. Historically, that's been called heresy, actually. When we commit to the lordship of Christ, we're called into following him. How do you unlock grace then? Through repentance. See, Jesus is calling us, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, to constantly, in a lifestyle of repentance, be turning back to him. Not in a premeditated disobedience, but in our constant disobedience as we trip and fall in our pursuit of him. Grace is unlocked through our repentance. But the teachers of the law refused, and so the tax collectors and the prostitutes went in ahead of them. Jesus keeps going, verse 33. Hear another parable, he says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out, the vi- let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornered stone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. There's so much in this story. We do not have time to dig all the way through it tonight. Uh, The daily podcast this week will spend quite a bit of time in this parable. There's all kinds of Old Testament references and Hebrew wordplay and all kinds of fun stuff that's going on here. But let's just look at a really big level. There's a distinction here between a steward and an owner. Those who are working in the vineyard are working in someone else's vineyard in order to produce fruit for someone else on their terms, right? But what's happening is that when that owner comes to see if they're producing fruit, to receive the fruit that's being produced, and to see if they're producing it on his terms, they're not only not doing it, but they're killing the people who are coming. They're, they're turning them away, they're running them out of town, and they're literally killing them, killing one, stoning another. What's happening is that there's a transfer where they're seeing what has been a gift to them that they are to steward, this vineyard that they're to work in, 
Now they want to be owners. And actually, Jesus is playing into a very deep pain in the Israelite people. Remember, they're standing in Jerusalem, in the midst of the historical promised nation of Israel that's being run by the Romans right in this moment. And so there's at first this sense among all of those who are listening that says, yeah, they should be doing that. That's what they needed to do because they do own it. They're the rightful owners. But Jesus makes it really clear that the owner is not only the rightful owner, but he's being gracious. He sends one group, they get killed. He sends another group, they get killed. And he says, I know I'll send my son. But they, in the son coming in, see an opportunity to transfer ownership. This is the heir. If we kill him, then it becomes our vineyard. See, the game that Jesus is exposing in them is a game of ownership. When we're stewards, we're called to produce fruit according to the, the desire of the owner. We've received a gift. And the gift in this instance is the vineyard to be managed as the owner says. But they want to be owners. They want to do what they want to with the vineyard. Now, most of you, anybody doing a lot of vineyard work this, these days? Anybody? Probably not. Not a lot of vineyard workers around here. So let's, let, let's get a little closer to home. <laughs> You're doing some vineyard working? That's great. Yeah. Backyard got a little grapevine going on. That's great. Love it. There you go. There you go. Let's get a little closer to home. Is your life yours or a gift? See, what Jesus is pushing into them is a question of what their responsibility is with what they've been given. And what he's pushing into us is that same question. What are we supposed to do with what we've been given? If we are the owners, we can do anything we want, however we want. But if we are stewards to manage the gift of God, then we should be producing fruit according to the direction of the owner. But see, here's the challenge. The way that that fruit gets produced in the life of a believer in Jesus is through the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit prompts us, it, he typically is not saying things that we want to hear. Anybody? Right? Like when, when God is saying, hey, this is an area I want you to repent in, I want you to turn from, I want you to deal with, for most of us we say, um, yeah, that's not my, yeah, that's going to be, that's too difficult. That's going to expose me a little too much. I'd like to keep that private. I'd rather not deal with that right now. But see, we won't say that to God because we know that he's God. So we won't say no. What do we say? Well, let me make you a deal. Right? Now, we, we don't say that explicitly, but we do. We say, I, I know you want me to deal with this area of my life that you're exposing by the power of your spirit that you just keep pointing to, and I know I'm supposed to deal with it, but how about this? If I get up 30 minutes early every morning, and I read the Bible, and I pray, and I get up to that 10% that I've been trying to give for quite a while, and I go to a fellowship hall that no longer has carpet on the walls and worship with people, how would that be? Would that, would that be enough? Would that, and so we like, let's make a deal, right? Like, how about if I give you all of this, and the owner of the vineyard saying, but I told you to deal with this, right? Like, it's like, it's like the, the tenants are saying, we're going we're gonna to water more. We'll, we'll water a lot, and we're going to go through, and we're going to plant some new stuff, and, and 
the owner is saying, but I told you to pull the weeds. Like, I wanted you to pull weeds. They're saying, eh, well, maybe we'll get there at some point down the line. That's the other game we play with ownership. We say, I'll obey later. At some point in time when I'm ready, then I'll step into this, then I'll obey. And one of the things you've probably heard me say over the years is that delayed obedience is not obedience, that's disobedience. Just think about it with your kids, right? If I say to my kids, there's Micah back there, there's Josiah back there, they sometimes make a mess in the house. If I say to them, you need to clean the house, and they say, oh, don't worry, Dad, we will, we have it planned for two weeks from today. Right? That, <laughs> that doesn't go well, right? That's a problem. And yet we do it all the time because we believe that we're owners and we're allowed. What Jesus is exposing in the teachers of the law is that they were unwilling to see themselves as stewards having been given a gift, but they wanted to be owners. All right, one final story. This is starting in chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, this is a weird story. Um, it, it starts out with something that's probably difficult for us to get within our current culture. What they're doing, these servants that are being invited, is not simply refusing an invitation to a party. What they're doing is literal rebellion against the king. The king has said, you come to the party, and they have said, we don't need you. Uh, Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, says this, those who are unworthy are those who feel quite worthy, and so do not need to accept the king's invitation. Now, think through that, because that's going to become real important here in just a minute. Those who are unworthy are those who feel quite worthy, so do not need to accept the king's invitation. And so faced with the rebellion of his subjects, the king says, never mind, I'm destroying them. Go out and invite everybody. And with our 21st century sensibilities, this is very inclusive. We love this, right? Everybody come. No problem, bad and good alike, whatever your background is, whatever you're doing, whatever you're like, come on in. And we feel really good for a verse or two, and then you get to this crazy thing about this one guy who shows up without his tuxedo on. Like, 
what in the world's going on, right? Like, he shows up dressed wrong, and the king challenges him. Why? Well, this is not about a forgotten tuxedo. This is not about having to wear certain clothes or uh, reach a certain bar. What's happened here is this. This man has, like everyone else, access to the wedding clothes. And he's said, I really like my jeans better. I'm good. I, I, I'm going to stick with what I got. He has actually placed himself in the category of all of the people at the front. Remember that quote from Bruner? Those who are unworthy think they're worthy, and because they think they're worthy, they're not willing to change. See, what happened is that this guy is playing with lordship. He's saying, who's really in charge? The king's in charge? Oh, great. I can't wait to come to the banquet because I love a good party. The king said, wear this. And he said, yeah, but I like jeans better. The lordship game works like this. Jesus would never ask that of me because Jesus wants me to be happy. Anybody ever heard that before? Jesus wants me to be happy, and so therefore he would never ask that of me. And there's a couple problems. The first problem is this. You're going to have a really difficult time finding a verse on that one. That, that's tough. That, the Bible is not ever going to say to you that the primary goal that Jesus has for you is your happiness. Now, what you will find are a lot of verses that says that Jesus so highly prioritizes your joy that he will force you to be unhappy in order for you to be joyful. There's a lot of that out there. But there's very little that says that Jesus wants you to be happy. And see, here's the other problem. When that happens, we interpret Jesus to be our buddy who's giving us some suggestions, not the king who's in charge. And so us as subjects of the Lord must be those who are willing to change clothes. But what Jesus says is, if you don't have a wedding garment, then you're going to be cast out, for many are called and few are chosen. If he is Lord... It's our responsibility to respond to his lordship. Otherwise, what you have is a kingdom without the king. And that's really the summary statement of all three of these parables. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law want a kingdom without a king. They want the goodness of the kingdom of God without submission to the lordship of God. They want the goodness of the feast without repentance, without the close. They want grace on their terms, not based on repentance. They want to live as owners, not stewards. They want to pursue a God who will make them happy, not a God who will force unhappiness on them in order that they would have joy. And so the challenge for us, if we circle all the way back to the beginning, is are we willing to be saved if someone other than Jesus has to die? And here's what I mean. Not that there's more sacrifice needed, but that Jesus' call to you and to me is to come and die to turn, 
to repent, to not play games. Next week, we're going to dive into a whole nother series of games that are being played between the Pharisees and Jesus. We're going to see him expose those as well. But for, for tonight, I want to ask you this question as we come to the communion table. Communion is a celebration of the body and blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. We want to be saved, but we only want Jesus to die. But when we come to the communion table, what we're affirming is not just that Jesus died on our behalf, but that the death that Jesus calls us to is actually the only pathway to life. Let me say that again. The death that Jesus calls us to is actually the only pathway to life. You being in charge, that's not going to bring life. Me pursuing my happiness, that's not going to bring life. Me redefining grace so I can do whatever I want and bask in the goodness of God, that doesn't bring life. All those things bring death. And so what seem to be very difficult words from Jesus are actually words of life where he's saying, this is the only pathway to live. And so I want to challenge you to not just read through this and move on, but to say honestly before the Lord, where am I forfeiting joy because I'm more concerned about me than you? And I think for all of us, we're going to find areas where we have said, I'll be in charge. I'll take that. I'll sin in that way if I want because I can because you'll give me grace. I don't need to change clothes. I don't need to do what you've called me to because I know better. And in each of those instances, whether you're experiencing it yet or you will experience it down the line, you will find that there is no real joy, no real life there. So Jesus in love for us is saying, don't go there. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord and he says to the people, you've hewn out cisterns for yourself. They're empty cisterns that don't have any water. You've done all of this? Like you've, you've done it. You've gone after it but it's not actually giving you what you need. And so the invitation of Jesus, even I believe to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in that moment, is to turn, to repent, and to come back to where there's life. 